Hi there, and welcome to this episode of Take Home Reading, a new audio series from the Wheeler Centre. In each episode, we'll be speaking to an Australian writer about their latest book and hearing a reading from it. This podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders, past and present. We pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of all lands this broadcast reaches. I'm Stella Charles and I work in the programming team at the Wheeler Centre. Usually I host our monthly reading series, The Next Big Thing, but since we haven't been able to gather together for a few months now, we thought we'd bring these readings to you instead. Today I'm talking to James Bradley. James is a writer and critic. His books include the novels Rack, The Deep Field, The Resurrectionist and Clade, a book of poetry, Paper Nautilus, and The Penguin Book of the Ocean. His latest novel and the focus of our conversation is Ghost Species, which was published in May through Hamish Hamilton. Thanks so much for joining me, James. Uh, no problem. It's wonderful to be here. Well, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about Ghost Species? Ghost Species is a novel about a billionaire who has a scheme to re-engineer the, the Earth's climate um, by doing a series of things. He wants to make um, trees that will sequester extra carbon dioxide and things like that. But one of the main things he wants to do is to re-engineer the climate by bringing back extinct species. So he wants to recreate ice age ecosystems, up in, particularly up in Arctic areas. But within that, he's got this scheme and what he wants to do is to bring back Neanderthals. He wants to resurrect Neanderthals. And he wants to do that for a couple of reasons. Um, but mostly it's because he believes that if he brings back this other species, suddenly we are no longer the only human species. Suddenly we'll have to see ourselves as no longer the top of a chain, but as part of a web. And we'll be forced to see ourselves through the eyes of this other this other species and re-encounter ourselves. And so he gets these two scientists to come and work for him and they create this Neanderthal child. Um, and the novel is about that child growing up over about the next 20 years as the world, as the world unravels, as the world unravels around them. And it's a book, look, the book's obviously about time and deep time and sure it's questions about extinction and grief, both kind of personal grief and, I suppose that larger kind of ecological grief that lots of us feel at the moment. And it's a book that's very much about questions of inevitability, like how much can we change? How can we not change? How much of our past, how much of our future has already been created by our past? And about, I suppose, a series of questions around the human and the non-human and the boundaries between those two. There's a lot going on. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose there is. But I mean, in an odd way, it's quite a slim and quite a kind of personal book, which is one of the things I really like about it, that that kind of sense that it's it's very, it's a book that I wanted to feel very clean, but also very, I suppose, kind of spare and quite intense. Yeah, that definitely comes through. Um, the, the last novel that you published uh, for adults was Clade, which came out in 2015. Clade also grapples with issues around climate collapse and I can really remember how much reading it affected me at the time as I don't think I'd engage with environmental issues in fiction before. Have you noticed a shift at all um, in literary fiction over the last five years 
towards addressing the climate crisis more directly since sort of since Clade? Yeah. Um, look, I think one of the things that's actually been really visible over about the last five to five, maybe slightly more years, is that there has been more and more fiction being published in that space, more and more fiction where writers are explicitly or tangentially, I think, grappling with grappling with a lot of these questions. And it's kind of really, I think that's been really exciting, seeing, seeing people begin to develop, I guess, a language and a set of techniques to talk about those questions, because they're really difficult questions to talk about in fiction. Um, simultaneously, you know, I find it kind of weird that there's not more of it. I mean, I do think that, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, this, the single largest, the single most defining thing we face as a species that our planet's space in general faces is this kind of environmental transformation we're in the middle of. And we just don't talk about it. You know, Amitav Ghosh talks about the Great Derangement, that kind of complete, erasure of this incredibly important thing from our kind of cultural and political lives. And and although there is a lot more fiction in this space, I do often feel like, I mean, I find myself wondering, why isn't all fiction about this? Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, yes, it's fabulous. There's lots more of it. Lots of it's great. Um, I still wonder why there's not more. Mm, yeah, you spoke about that so beautifully um, in the session this morning with the Melbourne Writers Festival, talking with Astrid Edwards and Keelan Hughes. Like You brought up this cognitive dissonance that um, you feel like we all experience in relation to the crisis and how fiction can sort of like, you know, bridge that sometimes. Um, yeah. have Is that, um, do you kind of approach writing fiction with that intent to kind of, to sort of explain ideas or remind people about what's going on in a way that maybe, is different from reading about these issues in, you know, journalism or nonfiction? Yeah, look, I mean, I, to be honest, I'm not sure I approach it. I think when I'm writing fiction, I'm really writing in a weird way for myself. I and mean, what I'm always trying to think through is how how do I feel about these things? I mean, hey, it's very much about the, the process of kind of answering questions that I have that I want, I want to find answers to. But I think that is one of the things that fiction in this area can do really effectively. I mean, give people a sense of, you know, give them a kind of framework to think about these things. I do think that when you look at, when you look at climate change, it's just such an enormous and all-encompassing kind of situation and, and problem that, that it just becomes overwhelming. And I think that fiction is one of the things that can give you, that can give you some kind of conceptual tools and some emotional tools to to think about and, and kind of structure the problem for yourself in your head. And also, I think, communicate something of what the actual lived experience of living with that is going to be like. Mm. I'm curious to know what kinds of things you are reading while writing Ghost Species. Are there any specific books, fiction or otherwise, that influenced the narrative or the writing style? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I look cause, probably because I wrote over a reasonably long period of time. There, there weren't specific things I was going to for guidance. I suppose I'd been reading a lot of a lot of nature writing in that kind of broad sense, writing about kind of science and and the environment. Um, I suppose though, in an odd kind of way, 
what I wanted with the book was to find a way of kind of writing about the moment, a kind of writing that kind of erases the boundaries between past and present, between present and future, and between, I suppose, me and the work. And so what I was looking for was work that helped me see how to write into that kind of immediacy, that kind of sense of of the imminence of what's going on. And so I suppose, you know, I was reading, as I say, a lot of a lot of nature writing, a lot of science, perhaps a bit of poetry, you know, things that things that I felt were kind of encountering the moment in a really direct kind of way. You've mentioned in interviews that you haven't found writing difficult during the past few months of the pandemic. Um, you wrote an incredibly moving essay about the recent death of your mother, which was published in a series for The Guardian called Fire, Flood and Plague, which I really highly recommend listeners seek out. It's a personal essay, but it also articulates this moment of collective grief um, that we're all experiencing. Do you feel a responsibility as a writer to capture this moment in history somehow? Is that sort of part of why you haven't been feeling blocked in terms of writing over the past few months as other writers have been feeling? Yeah, it makes me sound kind of punchable, doesn't it? Um, uh, <laughs> um, look, um, I mean, I think one of the things with Ghost Species, the novel, is it's one of those books that's kind of written out of that kind of personal thing. My dad died just as I was beginning it. My mum was kind of dying through the, the later stages of of the writing of it. So it's a book that's very much about all of those things. Um, but, I mean, in... I, I do feel there's a I do feel there's an obligation for writers to be not an obligation. I feel a personal obligation to be kind of writing into the moment. I mean, it seems that we are at. Someone said to me yesterday that this year feels like the year that all of the things that we we've been worrying about have all suddenly converged and started happening. And you know whether that's right or not, we clearly live, we're kind of living through what's clearly one of those kind of hinge moments in history. And I feel, as a writer, as someone who who kind of works in in this space, that there, if I can be working, I should be working. If I can be doing useful work, I should be doing useful work. And and that useful work might just be trying to trying to kind of capture the feeling of what it is like to be in this moment. But, but you know, it can also be about trying to do some of the work of thinking, thinking about how do we think about some of these questions? Where, where do we go from here? Uh, I, I think, and I think with nonfiction, that's reasonably easy to see how you do. I think with fiction, the relationship between the kind of moment and the work is rather more oblique. I mean, it seems to me that I'm always a bit wary of that kind of desire to instrumentalize fiction particularly around climate change that kind of to say look you know the fiction can do this you know the fiction can help us conceptualize and deal with climate change i know i was saying that myself a couple of minutes ago but there is that that kind of sense that you know somehow the job of this kind of fiction is kind of sloganeering and and political change and it seems to me that's obviously one of the things it can it can do but it all seems to me that that in a sense that's also the wrong test for the fiction it seems to me that one of the things you can do with fiction here is just to kind of capture what it's like to live now, to capture some sense of the kind of dissonance and strangeness of the moment. You can create a kind of space for people to think. I mean, you were talking before about that kind of idea of a dissonance and the dissonance between what we know and what we what we actually kind of live in our lives. You know, fiction is a way of bridging 
bridging the gap between those those two things. You know, so I mean, it does seem to me that that the that the work at the moment has a capacity to kind of to speak into the moment in a way that's really exciting. And look, honestly, at a kind of personal level, I mean, it's just been everything, as with everybody else, everything in my life has been completely out of control. I have no idea what's going to happen in two weeks' time, let alone in a year's time. And and writing's just been a real refuge for me, I think, over that. It's something that I can, something that I know I can do and something that has been a real comfort to me, that capacity to kind of go into the work and just just keep working I can get up every day and I can write 500 words or a thousand words and that is something I can something I can kind of control and and just at the moment having something like that that you can actually hold on to I think has been really important yeah that makes a lot of sense has has reading been a similar comfort are the two things sort of linked for you and if so is there anything that you've read that has kind of complemented that so I, I look I, I read a lot um I I love reading and it's very important to me because it's kind of my space you know it's it's the time I have to myself and if I don't get you know half an hour an hour to read every day particularly in the evening I I start to get really ferrety really <laughs> fast because it's the it's the place that I have that kind of is a sanctuary um and I have been reading I mean it, it is interesting to me lots of people I talk to say I can't read I can't right i can't focus on anything and i and in a sense i understand where they're coming from but i don't feel like that the issue for me with reading has just been that in terms of managing the business of all of this managing my kids managing work managing all of that stuff i often get to the end of the day and i'm incredibly tired so so kind of wrangling that sense of just exhaustion and finding the space to read has been quite quite difficult um but no i've read a lot of things i've really loved um i I'm in fact reading the the fourth of the Ellie Smith seasons books at the moment, Summer, which is just I like. I mean, I love every sentence of it. It's one of those books you pick up, and I f- it's so smart, and it's so funny, and it's so full of life and feeling, and I just feel this kind of joy every time I open it, which has been wonderful. Um, I, I loved the Hilary Mantel book, um, which I thought was just extraordinary. I mean, I think she has this. There's something fascinating going on right in the beginning of it, and. She's right, you know, everyone, that, that first hundred pages just after Anne's been beheaded and everyone is agitated and frightened. And it's not just that they've seen that they live in a world where everyone is at risk all the time. It's that they've actually glimpsed the kind of dead, uncanny heart of state power. Like what they've seen is the fact that the state holds your life in its hands. And and Mantell is so fantastic at getting at that. You know, it's a, one thing she's thinking about in books like Beyond Black and A Place of Greater Safety as well. But, you know, the, that sense of the uncanniness of power, the un, you know, the kind of dead hand of state power is kind of there in those first hundred pages, which I think is incredible. I read a lot of poetry I really loved. I've read some Alice Oswald and Hannah Sullivan's book, Felicity Plunkett's book, all of which I really liked. And, and I've just read an amazing book um, by Merlin Sheldrake uh, called Entangled Life, which is about fungus and is just – it's a wonderful book. I mean, it's for, the stuff about fungus is all wonderful. He's an incredibly energetic and kind of inspiring writer, but he's really great about the business of doing science, why he loves doing science, why he loves field work. Um, and it's just this kind of crazy, wonderful book about fungus. I really loved it. That sounds great. That's such a mixed bag of <laughs> things. <laughs> I'd love you to read an extract from Ghost Species for us. Uh, before you do, is there anything you need to say to set it up? 
Well, oddly enough, because I haven't been doing any festivals and things, I haven't actually been doing readings. So I don't, you know, usually when you, usually when you are out with a book, you know, there'll be bits that you read over and over again. And the couple of times I have read, I've read the prologue to the novel, but I'm actually not going to read that today. I'm going to read a bit from the second half. And the book, the book does this kind of trick, I guess, where the first half is about the mother of the Neanderthal child and then the second half is from the perspective of the child. Um, and this is a section uh, towards the end of the book, uh, two-thirds of the way through the book maybe. Um, and I guess climate change is hastening really quickly around them and the Neanderthal child Eve is now about uh, 20 years old, 19 or 20 years old. Um, and so it's just a little short section, a little section there. I'll start reading it. Um, that year it feels as though winter will never arrive, the autumn lingering unbroken through May and June and into July. The plants and birds are thrown into confusion. In the branches, parrots and pardalotes cry plaintively into the darkness of the evenings instead of heading north to their winter homes. In the trees near their house, rosella chicks call urgently in their nests, a late brood that will surely die when the cold eventually arrives, as it must. Even the trees react unpredictably, the natives flowering spontaneously, months out of season, the exotics either keeping their leaves or turning in the most half-hearted way, their confusion lending the hooded approaches to the city a curiously piebald look. In the mountains, fires smoulder, the smell of smoke and ash never far away. Nor is it just the birds and the plants that are unsettled. Late May brings a run of days in the mid-thirties, hot as summer. The blue water on the beach is dazzlingly clear in the weak winter light. The holiday mood made brittle by the shared sense that, delightful as the weather is, something is deeply awry. Eve feels it too, a sense of hastening, a dislocation deep in the fabric of things. And then, in mid-June, it changes. For a day it feels like a storm is approaching, Low cloud hanging overhead, the warm wind shifting uncertainly. Late that evening, Eve walks along the path behind the house into the forest. In the darkness, the landscape seems fitful, anticipatory. Overhead, the leaves whispering, the limbs of the trees creaking like the timbers of a ship at sea. Perhaps the animals feel it as well, because the usual cries and hoots are absent. But where the path divides, she hears a rustling and, quick as thought, a fox steps onto the path in front of her. It is close, no more than three metres ahead, and at first it seems not to have seen her, but then it turns and for a brief moment their eyes meet and she feels its awareness focus on her. She stands, frozen in place. Like her, it is a visitor here, an alien, but that does not mean she sees anything like recognition or affection in its gaze. Instead, she glimpses another mind, one absorbed in the business of its life, at which she is, to which she is at best an irrelevance. Then it turns its attention passing over her and away, and stepping back into its vulpine world, jogs away down the path and into the undergrowth. Kate is already in bed when she returns, the house silent. In her room, she opens the window above her bed and lies down, the scent of the night air filling the room as she waits for sleep. The change arrives sometime around three, a brief silence preceding a sudden blast of wind, the sound of branches whipping, a gate banging in the distance. Perhaps responding to some shift in the air pressure, Eve wakes in the moment before it strikes, and for a few minutes she lies listening to the wind, the passing of the warmth filling her with a curious sadness. And later, when she sleeps again, she dreams of the forest, 
the sleek shape of the fox moving through it. Thank you so much, James. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to Take Home Reading, a Wheeler Centre audio series. That was James Bradley reading from his latest novel, Ghost Species. It's published by Hamish Hamilton and available now. Please shop local and support new Australian work. We'll be back soon with another episode of Take Home Reading. Until then, visit wheelercentre.com for the best in books, writing and ideas from Melbourne, Australia and the world.